0: This evening we have the privilege of continuing our study in Mark. We're still in chapter 1. And as we, I've said more than once, I recognize that there's really this overarching theme of Christ's authority here in these early chapters of Mark. And last week we saw that plainly demonstrated in the account of Jesus healing and casting out the demon of this man that was in the synagogue, this man was completely overtaken by this unclean spirit and Jesus through his presence and his word, his authority and power completely took control of that situation and cast this unclean spirit out of this man. But it was more than just, as we said last week, it was more than just about the man and the demon and the synagogue in that day. It was more than that. It was a window into the entire cosmic conflict between good and evil, between God and Satan, And it was one way that Jesus was saying, I have overcome the world and I'm coming to demonstrate my power and divine authority over the forces of Satan. And so this week we want to look at the concept of Christ's authority over sickness and how Christ brings restoration in the lives of those he contacted while he was upon this earth. We'll be considering verses 29 through 45, the rest of chapter 1. And we see in these verses really four stories or vignettes, if you want, if you want to say that, that help us to see. Um, perhaps your Bible's like mine and has separate headings for these verses, but in each of these we see the concept of request and fulfillment and restoration. The, the people that we see need something, and they bring their request to Christ, or in some cases, others bring their request to Christ. And then we see Jesus responding to them, bringing restoration and healing. So let us pray as we approach this text, and let us, then we will read Mark 1, beginning with chapter 29, or verse 29. Heavenly Father, we count it a great privilege to stand here and to be here um, with your word before us, and we pray that your word would be over us, over us, and that we would sit Under its authority, we ask. And Lord, may it influence our lives in these next few minutes, but not just here. May it continue to influence our lives as we leave this place, as we go into our workplaces, into our homes, and into our relationships, as we encounter others. May your word change us, Lord, we pray. And now tonight, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Mark 1, verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, from every quarter amen and we praise god that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word each year at christmas time as probably as in the custom in many homes our children make christmas lists and some of our kids are really good at making christmas lists and some of their lists are very long and because of the obvious restraints of of having a large family and limited resources you know you can't Always buy everything that your children um, think up to put on their Christmas list, so we always have them prioritize their list. We always have them say, "What is that thing that you want most of all, or maybe the top two things that you want and just as our children have desires like that at Christmas time, so we, we all really all of us have desires that we wish to see fulfilled, and the people here in these stories in, in this these ...accounts in chapter 1 of Mark had desires that they brought to Jesus. They quickly learned that Jesus had power to work miracles... ...and they brought to him those who were sick or demon-possessed... ...for healing and restoration. And I would like to look at these sections under that kind of theme of restoration... ...as he showed his authority over sickness. We see in the first section that Peter's mother-in-law was restored... To serve next in verses 32 to 34 we see those who re- were restored to freedom from disease and demon possession. The next section is somewhat different in that Christ himself prayed, but I think we see an element of restoration in that that Christ himself was restored and readied for ministry through communion with his father. And then lastly, we'll look at this account of the leper and how he was restored to fellowship and worship through Christ's power and authority over this terrible disease of leprosy. We see in our opening verses 29 through 31 that that this follows immediately after the account of Christ casting out the demon in the synagogue. It was the same day. It says that they were on their way home. They came home. They left the synagogue and came to Simon's house. Perhaps they were looking forward to a meal after worship, sometimes like we do on Sunday morning. They got home, and what did they find? They found Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever. It's interesting that Scripture nowhere mentions Peter's wife's name. We know that he was married because he had a mother-in-law, and it was not uncommon in that day to have extended family um, living with them, so it was... um, Not likely a large house, but Peter and Andrew, Peter and his wife and his brother Andrew lived there with um, Peter's mother-in-law. But here the disciples made an appeal. They told Jesus about Peter's mother-in-law. It says they told him about her, her. It doesn't say that there was an expressed appeal to it, but it's certainly likely that they wanted her healed. They had just seen Jesus' tremendous power and authority over demons just hours before. And they must have thought, if Jesus could do that, why not this? And what was Jesus' response? It says he simply took her by the hand and lifted her up. In that compassionate action, Jesus restored her to wholeness. All it took was a touch, and she was made well. His response is vastly different if you think about how he responded in this situation in comparison to how he had responded in the synagogue. There the, the demon was challenging him, railing against him, voicing opposition to him. And he responded with authority and intensity and compelled the demon to obey him. Now Jesus again responds with authority but very differently. It's a compassionate authority Responding to the needs of those closest to him. Here he shows his authority over sickness. And that his power and dominion extends not just to the realm of evil spirits. But also to sickness and those that are in need of a physical touch. He shows his dominion and power. Extends to all the effects of sin and darkness as he deals with this woman and her fever. She then is restored to serve. She, was, she re- returns to probably what she was doing before, serving those in that house. Christ restored her to continue that ministry. So we see not only Jesus restoring those to serve, but he also restored to freedom those who came to him. Notice in the next section of verses that it was still the same day it was the evening, it was after sundown, and activity would usually pick up on the Sabbath following the sundown, following the official end of the Sabbath. People were free to move about more, activity picked up. They could do things that involved effort and activity. Capernaum was not very large, We can, but we can safely say that there is some metaphoric language in verse 33, which says that, the whole city was gathered together at the door. We don't know that ev- actually everyone in town was there, but, you know, men, you've probably been to an event. If you've ever been to an event, like a church or something, and maybe your wife couldn't go for some reason, and she might ask you, well, who all was there? And what do we say in response? Everybody. And what do we mean by that? Well, we mean that everybody you would expect to be there was there, or maybe we just mean there's a lot of people there. How Whatever the case was, there was a lot of people flocking to the door to get to Jesus. News had traveled fast. Jesus had cast out a demon in the synagogue earlier in the day, healed Peter's mother-in-law, and then suddenly it seemed that everybody was there bringing their sick and diseased loved ones to Jesus. And they brought those also that were possessed with demons. And just as before, Jesus cast them out with authority. However, this account differs in that he did not even allow the demons to speak. Previously, the spirit had railed against him, had spoken out against him. But here, Jesus forbids them even to speak. And it was a testimony to the fact that Jesus was seeking to scale back the increasing excitement as the news of Him spread. Not that He didn't want the news of the kingdom to go forward, but He wanted to go forward to the places and in the way that He chose and at the time that He chose. Notice in verse 34, it says that the demons knew Him. We, we saw that last week. It was evident in that text, and it's plainly stated here. But Mark does not treat this as some anomaly, but rather matter-of-factly, that there are demons and that they know God. Consider the book of Job, In, in Job 1, how Satan came before God, and there was a conversation between God and Satan. There was no introduction, they knew each other, but also note that Satan could do nothing except what God permitted here, the demons are cast out and not even permitted to speak. As a result, the people who had previously been possessed by these demons were freed. They were freely restored because of Christ's authority over the demons. In the next section of verses, we see that, that Jesus prayed. And, and the concept of Christ praying is somewhat has always some, seemed somewhat strange to me. Because Jesus is God... And why does Jesus need to pray? So I want to approach this carefully and thoughtfully... ...as we think about Christ communing with His Father. Jesus was submissive to His Father's will in His mediatorial work... ...while He was upon the earth. He communed with His Father in prayer. He said in John 14, "...I do as the Father has commanded me... ...so that the world may know that I love the Father." This is not in any way to say that Jesus was or is eternally submissive to the Father. Certainly Mark, along with the rest of Scripture, shows us plainly that Jesus is God. We see that that theme developing and, and being revealed to us plainly in this opening chapter. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. But there's an aspect of submission that Christ showed while he was upon the earth in relation to the work that he came to do. Jesus did the Father's will. Jesus loved the Father, and He communed with the Father. He was sinless, certainly. He never needed to confess sin as part of His prayer. Certainly prayer for us, as as we often say, should include confession. But for Jesus, prayer was communion with His Father. I think it was offering up of His desires to His Father... It was at times conformity to the will of His Father. We see that in the garden as He said, as He prayed, Not my will, but thine be done. For us, prayer is offering up of our desires to God. But as we do, we are conformed to God's will. Even when our original desires are not met. Hebrews 5 tells us that, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I don't, I don't have time, I'm, I'm not sure I have ability to completely unpack that text, certainly not in the time we have this evening. It's a tremendously deep passage, but... Suffice it to say that Jesus prayed and Jesus benefited from his prayers. We see Jesus praying at important times in his life. He was, in a sense, restored in his spirit and and readied for further ministry through prayer. Three times in Mark we read about Jesus praying. Here, at the outset of his wider Galilean ministry... We see it again in Mark 6, following the feeding of the 5,000. And in Mark 14, where um, several of the gospel writers record his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. If Jesus needed time alone with his Father, certainly we do as well. If Jesus took time to commune with his Father, so should we. Jesus taught his fathers to pray. And not only did he give them license to address the God of the universe as father, he told them to. He taught us, them and us, to address God in that way. He taught us to hallow God's name, to pray for the coming of his kingdom, the accomplishment of his will, for daily bread, for forgiveness of sins, for for deliverance from temptation and from evil. Those are the things we pray for. That's what he told them in what we call the Lord's Prayer. But what does Jesus pray for? Mark doesn't really tell us what the content of his prayer was in this this brief passage... ...where it talks of Jesus rising early and going to pray. But we know that Jesus prayed that the Father would be glorified. We see that in Mark 12 and 17. He prayed a prayer of... of ...basically a prayer of communion with the Father... um, ...before raising Lazarus from the dead. We read that in John 11 and how he says... God, I know that you hear me. He also prayed, of course, for his disciples in John 17. And he prayed in agony in the garden and on the cross. Jesus prayed, and it was often when he was extremely busy and often before or after major events in his life. Here in Mark, Jesus had just had a tremendously busy day early in his ministry, in the synagogue, in a home, in the surrounding areas there in Capernaum. And he's facing the expansion of his ministry to other parts of Galilee. And he rises early in the morning to communion with his father. But what were the disciples doing in all this? Well, they were looking for Jesus, but not not so they could join him in prayer, no. They searched for him, and when they found him, they said, Everybody's looking for you. Almost as if to say, Jesus, what are you doing? Don't you know everybody's wanting you? It was like they were saying... You did all these great things yesterday. Come on. People are waiting for more of the same. But Jesus had other plans. The disciples did not yet fully understand his mission. Jesus reminds them that he's not just a miracle worker for miracle's sake. He came to preach. That's why he came out, he said. He came to proclaim the message of the kingdom. Jesus stressed that many more needed to hear the message. And He left Capernaum, no doubt, with sick people there. He did not take time to heal all of them. He continued spreading the message of the kingdom into other places. The disciples had one agenda. Jesus had quite another. Jesus knew more people needed to hear the message of salvation, so he told them that he had to move on to other towns. Jesus was ready for further ministry, and he wanted and needed time with his Father. We should learn from Jesus that we too are restored and readied for ministry through prayer. So far we have seen the restorative authority of Christ as he healed Peter's mother-in-law. As he restored those held captive by demons and disease. And we see that Christ himself was restored and readied for ministry through prayer. Lastly we should consider the healing of the leper. And we see one who was restored to fellowship and worship. There's several things that, that we could say about this leper and, and the, the, the disease of leprosy. As in these other sections, there's an appeal based upon this man's desire. So firstly, notice the boldness of this man's appeal. And in order for us to really appreciate the boldness and brazenness of this leper, we have to think about the, the disease of leprosy. And in, in Scripture, especially back in Leviticus, in chapters 13 and 14, where it deals with this dreadful disease, it's, it's probably more of a larger category of other skin diseases. But when we think about leprosy and we see how they were treated and how they were ostracized, it's somewhat chilling. I think of a few years ago, we watched the movie Ben-Hur, and we saw, and, and that movie, in, in my mind um, seems to do a good job of portraying the just kind of the repulsiveness and the fact that people were were just almost frightened and repulsed by by the the idea and the thought of seeing a leprous person. so think about a man who 's cast out from his community, who cannot enjoy the fellowship of of family, who cannot be in worship, who was unclean, who literally had to say. Call out those words so others would not encounter him unclean, unclean. Don't come near me. I am unclean. I am leprous. So here was this man that cast him himself down before Jesus and implored him. The text says he begged Jesus to do something for him. <clears throat> he came with boldness. He was bold because he really shouldn't have been anywhere near Jesus. He was begging him. And he said, if you will, you can make me clean. See, he even had good theology. He seemed to know at least a little bit of who Christ was. He had faith. He, he recognized the power and authority that Jesus possessed. How different this was from the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. We, we might expect Jesus to heal her... She was was family of someone that was a follower of Jesus. But here was this man. Here was this man that was cast off by society. He He was unclean. He was defiled. He was a person that people were not supposed to touch. Yet this man received Christ's compassion and healing. Our text tells us that Jesus actually touched him. He touched this one who was cast off by society. The one who others avoided for fear of themselves getting infected. Jesus touched him and said just four words in response to him. I will be clean. By touching this man, Jesus identified with him. He's putting himself in the arena of suffering. But also by touching and healing him, Jesus is again announcing that he is there to reverse the effects of sin. Not every effect, mind you. Not that he healed every sick person in every town that he visited. But Jesus is ushering in a new age. His kingdom is breaking in. And along with that in breaking comes primarily forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God. But also he is coming to undo the effects of sin. As one commentator said, rather than being rendered unclean... By touching this man, Jesus radically reverses the direction of purity and brings healing and cleansing from defilement. Jesus has come to bring the law to its prophesied consummation in the kingdom of God, end of quote. In other words, instead of this man defiling Jesus by his touch, Jesus brings healing to this man through his touch. And then he tells him to keep quiet about this, as if a man who has suffered like he has physically, emotionally, spiritually, in the way that this man had likely had being a leper at that time, Jesus tells him to keep quiet, but he can 't help he can't help himself. He broadcasts the good news about Jesus and and in one way we can we can say, why not wouldn't we do the same? I hope we certainly would but He actually made Jesus' ministry more challenging. It says that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. In other words, he seemed to have to slip in and slip out. And his ministry continued in desolate places and people came to him. In closing, I ask you, what is your spiritual desire? Here Jesus restored those he encountered. Peter's mother-in-law was restored to serve. Many were restored to wholeness and freedom. The leper was restored to health, fellowship, and worship. What restoration do you need? I was looking, sometimes I just thumb through the classifieds ads, and, and if I ever see a car, especially an old classic muscle car, it catches my eye. And you know the ones that are fully restored, those are the ones you're going to pay tens of thousands of dollars for. But if you can ever find one that's a project car then you can get it at a a cheaper price. But you know what a project car means? That means it's a work in progress. Either it hasn't been started or somebody got started on it and ran out of money. So it might come with a box of bolts along with it. Well, you know what? We're kind of like project cars. If you're God's child, God has done an amazing work in your life. And you have been restored in many ways. But God is still working on you. And we will not complete that restoration until we reach glory. But we can trust in Christ who is the master restorer. So whatever you're praying for, whatever you're looking for God to do in your life and in the life of your loved ones around you, whether that's a a loved one that that needs salvation, perhaps you look at your prayer life and say, yes, I need communion, more consistent communion with the Father. Maybe you need to grow in loving your spouse or being a better witness to your neighbors. Make your appeal to Christ. He is compassionate. He has authority. And he invites you. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are working in your people and that you are accomplishing your will and that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. We pray, O God, that we would rest in knowing that you are accomplishing in us your will. And I pray that we would seek you and seek your will and seek that daily communion with our Heavenly Father. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.